It's November 7th, 2007, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you as always from Canada's National Arts Centre here in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. In September of this year, I had the great pleasure of performing with Valery Gergiev and the World Orchestra for Peace, with performances in Rotterdam, Budapest, and Brussels. This was my third tour with this very fine orchestra, which is made up of musicians from over 45 countries, who gather together every two or three years. Two years ago, we performed in London, at the Proms, in Berlin, in Moscow, at the Great Hall of the Conservatory, and finally in Beijing. The World Orchestra for Peace was founded in the mid-90s by the late Sir George Scholte. Scholte had been approached by then United Nations Secretary General Boutros Ghali to organize a concert in Geneva to honor the 50th anniversary of the birth of the UN. Scholte handpicked musicians from all over the world who came to participate in a kind of a manifesto for the power of music and its ability to transcend politics. After Schulte's premature death, the orchestra continued under the leadership of the dynamic Russian Valery Gergiev. When I first joined the orchestra in 2003 for performances in St. Petersburg and Moscow, I decided to record my experiences for a documentary for CBC Radio. This program was broadcast on Remembrance Day in 2003. Since then, I've had many requests for access to this presentation, and I'm grateful that CBC Radio producer Denise Ball has now made the show available for inclusion on this NACOcast. So here, from the fall of 2003, is the broadcast that I called Miracle at the Marinsky. I am sitting on the stage of St. Petersburg's Marinsky Theatre, gazing up at crystal chandeliers and gold-leafed balconies. Around me are musicians from all over the globe, representing some of the world's great orchestras. There are lively conversations in Russian, German, Italian, Greek. A trumpet virtuoso from Norway is quietly warming up in a corner, while an Israeli violinist tunes his Stradivarius. A Swiss oboist compares reeds with his Spanish colleague. A Hungarian unpacks his cello next to a Russian bass clarinetist. It is a Tuesday morning, and we are here to pursue a strange and wonderful experiment. Can 100 musicians from 60 orchestras in 45 countries come together and create something wonderful in three short days? Can we embrace our differences, share our commonalities, and find a cohesive musical purpose in time for Thursday night's concert? In the stunning beauty of this old Russian concert hall, we are seeking a musical miracle. We are all overcome by the history etched in this beautiful theater. Tchaikovsky premiered his last two symphonies on this very stage. Rimsky-Korsakov conducted here, as did Borodin. These walls heard the first performances of Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, and The Nutcracker. Rachmaninoff and Stravinsky stood on this very podium. 
the orchestra tunes. This is not a simple task. Symphony orchestras play at different pitches in different parts of the world. It is not easy for wind and brass players to adapt their instruments to these fluctuations. The oboists have agreed that the A will be 442. We can all work with this. The tuning is our first test of international diplomacy. Gergiev mounts the podium. Tall and dark, his eyes burn with intensity. There is a complexity to his features, a wildness in his gaze. He seems to have stepped out of a portrait by Delacroix. The downbeat comes, not simple and concise, but a sweeping electric gesture with ten fingers fluttering. The first violin section is primarily made up of concertmasters, natural leaders. The body of sound is huge and extends to the back stand. Can you make an army out of generals? With all of these strange colleagues, we do not yet have the intuitive and unspoken skills to rely on each other. Since its inception, the task of organizing this remarkable ensemble has fallen to an Englishman, Charles Kay. For many years, Charles was Schulte's personal manager, and his devotion to the maestro's vision is still keen. Musicians can be and are the best possible ambassadors for peace in our time. Nobody, to my knowledge, had really thought along those lines before he put the orchestra together for the United Nations 50th anniversary in 95. As a man who had suffered so much because of war, when Boutros Ghali asked him to come to Geneva and give a concert and gave him free reign of which orchestra he bought, you know, come with Chicago or Vienna Philharmonic or whatever you like. And Scholte went away and came up with this, this idea, why don't I handpick an orchestra from the best musicians from around the world? And he said, I will vouch for the quality and we'll call it the World Orchestra for Peace. He asked them to give their services. Musicians can be seen to be the wonderful, generous, warm and peace-loving people that they are, that it really is a pleasure to do all this hard work and get them back together, even if it only happens every three, four, five years. If the occasion is right, and if the occasion is so special that no single orchestra in the world could fill the gap, then that's the time when I call the musicians together as the World Orchestra for Peace. All the musicians, as you know yourself, have come to us by personal recommendation from people that we trust. Our business is like any other, it's very small. The best people in the world, everybody knows. And you eventually get a consensus. So if it's not somebody that I know personally as a player in one of the orchestras, it will be somebody who has been very, very highly and warmly recommended. At the Marinsky, the World Orchestra rehearsal continues. We move on to Richard Strauss's great tone poem, Don Juan. The opening measures are a rite of passage for any orchestral violinist. 
Our concertmasters, all 18 of them, are up to the task. Gergiev flings his shoulders in their direction, and somehow it's together. This is promising. We come to the first moments of tenderness. The score here is very dense. The orchestra is struggling to play with great transparency. The tempo is slow and very flexible. Everyone is listening intently, trying to stay together. Gergiev refuses to spoon-feed us. The beat remains nebulous. But while he forsakes clarity, he exudes a raw energy and confidence. His eyes burn with intensity. He does not hold a baton. The hands and the fingers are in constant motion. I ask Philharmonia timpanist David Corkill about Gergiev's technique. I wondered whether this is the right kind of conducting for such a melange of musicians. I think it's fair to say he's not the neatest-looking maestro. Uh, on the box, he has some mannerisms which can be misleading, and the way he uh, indicates ends of phrases, the, the the flickering of the fingers, the little almost secondary downbeats he gives. Uh, until you're used to them, they really can be misleading, and even when you're used to them, you know, sometimes not really sure. Um, it adds a drama. I suppose it adds a sense of mystery, which is part of the conductor's art, I suppose. Um, but above all, he, he has uh, complete musical integrity. He's there for the very, very best of reasons. And I'm, I think that's something that he inspires us with, too. Stravinsky's Petrushka is next. This is music of great rhythmic complexity, and Gergiev's imaginative vision of puppets and tragedy does not make for easy ensemble playing. It suddenly strikes me that we are like a hundred marionettes dangling from his dancing fingers. Our maestro is painting the whole canvas of the ballet, but the details of ensemble are up to us. On the second day, the maestro is late again. He appears disheveled and exhausted. He conducted a huge program with his own Marinsky Orchestra the night before and is consumed with the details of the 60 concert Festival of the White Knights. But today, when the rehearsal begins, the transformation in this orchestra is startling. The ensemble today is much tighter. The intonation has improved. The balance is more refined. Gergiev responds immediately, shedding his fatigue. He draws from his well of limitless energy, and the rehearsal is an immediate pleasure for all on stage. I think we all feel a pressure to succeed. Beyond our normal desire to play well, there is the weight of this whole concept bearing down on us a world orchestra for peace, 
It implies playing at a world-class level and proving that this can only occur with the utmost generosity of spirit. The Marinsky Theatre is packed for the first concert. There's excitement in the audience. Expectations are high. Gergiev walks to the podium. He seems absolutely wired, his body almost shaking with energy. The opening chords of the Midsummer Night's Dream Overture are so difficult. There's no clear downbeat. His fingers quiver like butterflies. Somehow, the woodwinds are together. The concert goes by in a blur. The scherzo tempo is lightning fast. Don Juan is tentative, but the delicate acoustics of the Marinsky allow for great intimacy in the sound. There are some marvelous and unexpected pianissimos. The Swiss oboist plays his solo with ethereal beauty and self-effacement. Petrushka, the real challenge on the program, feels unsettled. The metric changes are not always smooth. We are struggling to comprehend Gergiev's intent. We play an encore, a favorite of the concert organizer. It is the strangest possible choice. The Dambusters March by the Englishman Eric Coates, the theme to a famous British war movie. The Royal Air Force bombing the German industrial heartland. The irony escapes no one. Yet it proves to be a rousingly effective choice, naive in its exuberance. It probably never had such a performance as this, with musicians from Germany and England and 40 other countries playing a jingoistic tune and bathing in the internationalism of its optimism. We party at the Marinsky. There is, of course, vodka, and lots of it. The talk is of the concert and of the potential of the orchestra. My name is Tomoyuki Hashitsume. I'm from Osaka, Japan. My name is Carmina Lauri. I play the violin, and I'm assistant concertmaster of the London Symphony Orchestra. Oh, this orchestra is fantastic. You get a lot of musicians from all over the world with, with the, you know, different mentalities, and it, it takes a while to, to, for us to adjust to each other. But I mean, by now we've rehearsed, and uh, it's fantastic. Uh, my name is Michael White. I'm principal clarinetist with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London. With any orchestra, the, you know, the sum of the parts is greater than the individual input. So, uh, with this orchestra, although there are some. Uh, absolutely stunning players, it would take quite a long time for the orchestra as a body to come together. Uh, my name's Fanula Hunt and I play with the Irish Chamber Orchestra. It's amazing to see how people from different countries speak the same language through music. That always that always amazes me actually. Every time I play with 
people from different backgrounds, different cultures, and um, it's all the same at the end of the day, <laughs> no matter where you come from. George Vosberg, principal trumpet, Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. Uh, one thing that struck me immediately about this orchestra is just the quality of the string section. Obviously, string players, mostly many from Europe, there's just a depth and a quality of the sound uh, uh, and a power to the sound that uh, I'm personally not accustomed to hearing uh, from the orchestras that I've played in in my career. I describe this experience as playing in the middle of a wall of sound. There's just this massive sound around you. It's quite an extraordinary experience. Well, my name is Jan Fredrik Christiansen and I'm principal trumpet in the Oslo Philharmonic, Oslo, Norway. I, I don't think music can change the world, but the music can maybe change the, 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 the people who live in the world. Everyone hopes for peace, I think, and to be able to live in quietness. My name is Gene Picorni, and I'm playing in the Chicago Symphony. Who knows if you got if you got this orchestra uh, for longer than a week, uh, we might be at each other's throats. But the fact that we know it's it's kind of a temporary situation, and everybody is willing to give a lot. Why there's a certain spirit of uh, camaraderie. The overnight train to Moscow is an opportunity to reflect. I have spent the past 28 years making my living in a symphony orchestra. I'm still mystified by what makes a good conductor or what circumstances lead to a great concert. One thing is for sure, at its very best the symphony orchestra will be better than the sum of its parts, but it takes an alchemist on the podium for magic to happen. Musicians are a tough crowd. They can be incredibly cynical about conductors, and backstage criticism of the maestro of the moment is expected. Yet ultimately, there is an eagerness for leadership, a willingness to give and to cooperate, to offer trust. At the Marinsky, there were 100 significant egos on the stage, but the usual baggage was left at home. Our desire to make this a significant artistic success has given Gergiev an opportunity to achieve something important. We have a free evening in Moscow, and many of us decide to go to a concert. Gergiev is conducting his own Marinsky Orchestra at the Moscow Conservatory. A dozen of his musicians have played in the World Orchestra all week, but they have also been maintaining a full rehearsal and concert schedule of their own. They have played an opera and prepared two separate orchestral programs on top of their rehearsals with us. They have traveled overnight and rehearsed all day while we rested. I go expecting to hear a tired orchestra. I experience a revelation. The main work is the monumental Seventh Symphony of Shostakovich, a work written for the predecessors of this very orchestra. In 1942, the German army began a 900-day siege that remains to this day a defining moment in Russian history. The conditions were appalling. Food was so scarce that its starving citizens were boiling their shoes and eating the leather. Thousands died. Yet music remained alive. 
And amid the carnage, Shostakovich wrote his astounding symphony. After the first performance, the musicians who participated were hailed as heroes. Sixty years later, sitting in the Moscow Conservatory, I come to understand the greatness of the Russian orchestral tradition, and perhaps I finally begin to understand Valery Gergiev. As a professional musician, I find it difficult to listen to music in a non-critical way. I envy the ability of the non-musician to enter the experience of a performance without judgment. But this concert transports me. It's evident from the first notes that there's nothing to criticize. The playing is not just beautiful, it is true. It resonates with honesty. I've heard great orchestras perform, but never have I known an orchestra to so completely assimilate the intent of a conductor. The woodwinds are superb, the brass perfectly balanced, and the strings are... Well, it's as if the conductor was the bow arm for 50 musicians. If I was uncertain about Gergiev after our St. Petersburg concert, I was now a convert. Our final day. We arrive in the mid-afternoon for our last rehearsal at the stunning new International Music House in Moscow. This theater has been open for only a few weeks. It's a striking architectural statement looking rather like a huge alien spacecraft that has landed only a mile from the Kremlin. There is an element of Soviet coldness to it, but the interior stonework is startling. It is unrepentantly modern, a hall fearlessly designed for orchestral music. In a cash-starved Russia, the city has found the resources to build a monument to the centrality of music in its culture. The Marinsky concert had been uneven, We'd been like couples on a blind date. We had one more chance to discover what was possible. From the opening chords, the atmosphere is pure joy. Gergiev is calm, his manner relaxed, his intentions clear. I sense a huge jump in our collective self-confidence. The individual playing is gorgeous. The horns, the Germans and the Russians, whose parents and grandparents had fought wars, blend effortlessly, their intonation faultless. The American trumpet player and his Japanese and Scandinavian section play together with such ease. The young Italian flutist brings the cadenzas in Petrushka to life with charm and imagination. The British timpanist and his Russian percussion section are perfectly synchronized. The violins, all those prima donna leaders from orchestras in England, Israel, Mexico, Austria, and Hungary, play with a democratic zeal and sense of unanimity. The audience will not let us go. I count 14 curtain calls. It's just such great fun. The sense that music is important and meaningful and that audiences can demonstrate their delight with such exuberance. I want to bottle the feeling and bring it back to all my colleagues in Canada. Was it a great orchestra? Perhaps not. The sum was not yet greater than the parts. 
though they were awfully good parts. And the goal was completely noble. For one short week, 100 musicians from all over the world came together to see what we could achieve. Every year, our world leaders join together for their summits. They all have self-interests and policy agendas, and the outcome of these meetings are predictable and rarely uplifting. It seems that words so rarely lead to real progress. So, I have an idea. At the next summit, let's have all our leaders substitute music for all that talking. We'll give them a week together in an orchestra. Give the American president a beautiful old Italian cello. The English prime minister a fine German clarinet. The North Korean president a really good French harp. The Muslim leaders would be scattered around the viola section. The Israelis, the Indians, the Pakistanis would all play violin, and they'd have to agree on the Boeings. Then I'd put the CEOs of the world's multinational corporations in the chorus, where they could sing their hearts out. And the audience? Well, the audience would be all the rest of us. We could sit with the mothers and fathers and children of all the refugees and victims of war. We would withhold our applause until the ensemble really worked. We would sit and wait for the resolution of dissonance. We would give a standing ovation for every act of harmony. It would not be perfect, but it would be beautiful. Well, that's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to NACOcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. And there you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. Of course, you can easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on NACOcast. Until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.